Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi. Welcome to Finders Grievers, a happy-ish podcast about sad things. I'm your host, Shohana Sharman. On today's episode, I am sitting down with the author of the book Cycle of Lives, David Richman. David is an author, public speaker, philanthropist, and an endurance athlete whose mission is to form more meaningful human connections through storytelling. In his first book, Winning in the Middle of the Pack, he discussed how to get more out of ourselves than ever imagined. And now, with Cycle of Lives, David shares the interconnected stories of people overcoming trauma and delves deeply into their emotional journeys with cancer. So, without further ado. Hi, David. How are you? Good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great. Um, Are you, so you mentioned that you're located in um, Las Vegas. Are you a Las Vegas native? Uh, well, I live here now. My wife and I moved here after uh, the pandemic started. We, we were commuting between California and Nevada. And um, we got a little more mobile because we have 23-year-old twins and they went off to college to get their master's and all that other stuff. So, um, so we were a little bit more mobile. We live, we live here now full time. That's great. Yeah. And uh, so so exciting about your twins going to going to get their masters oh my gosh i know one one uh philosophy at university of chicago and the other um politics and international studies over at cambridge in the uk so amazing also i have a soft spot for the university of chicago my best friend went there and they have the most beautiful campus i think i've ever been to stunning it's just such a bummer because uh my son is a i say he's a little less social than my daughter and he didn't get to have any classes in person and stuff. And he, the only uh, a thing that he got to see in Chicago was basically walking around the campus. Couldn't even really go into it much, but gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous campus. Yeah, Love it. Sure. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Um, so David today, uh, I wanted to chat with you about your um, book. You have written a book on your experience with grief. Mm -hmm. But before we get to that, I actually wanted to learn a little bit about your experience with grief and grieving. Mm -hmm. Um, So you lost someone very close to you. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, Sure. Um, I mean, unless you're, you know, somebody who, who, who doesn't live amongst the human race, we all, we all lose people eventually. Just it's a, 
sometimes it happens a little bit sooner than we than we hope or that we expect or that we can understand. With with me, it was my sister. Um, it was about uh, 10, 12 years ago that she passed away. I got a call about 15 years ago. I was on a little ski vacation with my kids. We were going through a tough time in our own lives, and uh, they were very young. And um, um, I get a call from June, my sister June, saying that she had been diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. And um, she had a husband, you know, great circle of friends, two young kids, um, you know, just living a vibrant life, enjoying the world, very outgoing, very um, impactful. She'd walk into a room and not be a little mouse. She would she would own the room. You know, really had a ton of people in her circle. And I think that's the thing that hit me the most was that, you know, she was really vibrant and very much alive. And now she had to deal with the reality of the fact that she had to, you know, prepare to die, which was a really difficult thing for her. Yeah, that is, um, I mean, I, there are no real words for that experience of learning that information and then processing it and, you know, going through it. Um, tell me a little bit about how you felt during that time. Yeah. And you're right. You know, the human brain is just not wired to contemplate our own mortality at kind of like the subatomic level. It's just not something that we're capable of doing. So when you're forced to do it, it's just such a dark hallway to navigate. You know, really people just don't know how to do it. And, um, you know, so I, I, I totally feel you on that. So how I felt about it was a bit of denial. Like, um, I didn't want to really try to wrap my brain around it because I didn't know that I could. Um, you know, some people kind of lean into the grief, other people and deal with it. Other people kind of close their eyes to it. Um, I mean, we all handle those situations very differently. For me, I think um, the way that I could kind of not deal with it in the way that I probably needed to was to talk to my sister a lot. So if I talked to her a lot, then it showed me that she was okay, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, quite occasionally, Sean, I would, I would uh, uh, say something stupid or that I thought was stupid. Like I call her up on the phone and I go, Hey June, how's it going? Then I'd sit there going, Oh, she's dying of cancer. How do you think she's doing? And then she would go, oh, I'm fine. Anyway, what are you calling about or whatever? So we, we you know, I kind of had to get over those things, but um, I think any time that I was forced to think about the emotional side of it, I, I kind of drew a blank. It's interesting because I feel like I did the polar opposite thing to what you did. Hmm. Um, so my mom was diagnosed with lung cancer in 2016, and I very much went the denial but full-on denial route. Mm. where I didn't really I knew that we had limited time with her and there was some part of me that knew like it's now or never but I didn't want to come to terms with it and so I didn't try to you know I spent time with her but I didn't I feel like I didn't try to make the most of that time 
everyone has those, you know, everyone has some kind of a regret or another when it comes to these things. But I, I wonder about that a lot of like, oh, what could I have done differently in that time? Yeah, and I think those are natural questions to ask. But I, I also think that if you now not, not everybody has the opportunity to take a proactive way of dealing with things. Sometimes we're just living our lives and sometimes life is not fair. It's not easy. We're too busy. Um, you know, there's just, there, there might be outside factors that are not allowing us to kind of go down that road. But, you know, I mean, if you are fortunate enough to be able to contemplate, I think you'll learn that you probably did the best that you could do. She probably did the best that she could do. The people around you did the best that you could do. And if you could go back and do things again, you wouldn't be human. That's not the world we live in, you know? So at some point, you kind of just got to say, that's the best I could do at the time. You know, I I lost my dad when he was, when I was very young, well, pretty young, probably maybe about the same age as maybe you when, when, when your mom, my, my, I, I, uh, I lost my dad when he was, when I was like 22 or something like mm. that. And God, I used to beat myself up over and over and over because I didn't have a great relationship with my father because he was way older than me. And going back quite a bit of time, um, he was an old, old guy. Like he wasn't a young, old guy like me. He was an old, old guy. And I was not um, comfortable being in a room with somebody who should have been able to relate to me and should have been able to kind of talk to me like I'm a kid and, you know, treat me like he's my dad, but he was freaking old, right? And just decrepit and just didn't know how to deal with it. And I I was such a jerk. I, I just shut my mouth. I didn't talk to him. I didn't try to have some compassion for the fact that he might have been dealing with stuff. I was just stuck in my own head and my own world. And Johanna, I used to beat myself up going, God, you were such a jerk. Like, couldn't you have just dealt with that better and over time i've kind of learned like yeah i don't feel great about it but i didn't know any other way mm -hmm. i just didn't so i can constantly beat myself up over it or i can forgive myself for knowing that i did the best that i could do at the time and if i could do it again i i sure would do it better maybe you might too or do things differently but at the time did you know because you didn't know you know and so you only know what you know and you know it and so you can't, you can't really beat yourself up over things like, oh, woulda, coulda, shoulda. It's just, it's just not the way the world works, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. When, when your sister passed away mm -hmm. from this disease, how, I mean, how did you cope with it? Yeah. Well, I've, I've come to learn because, um, you know, through this this project that I was involved with that eventually led to the book, and I'm still very much, you know, involved with, it's my project. It's called The Cycle of Lives. I was able to examine that question over and over and over. But cancer is a little bit different than a lot of other diseases because it is somewhat kind of, I call it like kind of voodoo. It's part voodoo. Like it's hard to understand, you know, it's, it's like, how is it that somebody smokes and drinks and 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 lives a stressful life and they don't get cancer and they live to be 100 years old and somebody else is super healthy and mellow and the greatest 
person in the world, ate healthy, never smoked, and they, they get lung cancer. And you go, I mean, really? It's just, it doesn't make sense. And you do a certain drug regimen on a certain type of cancer. Now, some cancers are kind of predictable, but a lot of cancers aren't. The way the genes mutate is rather uh, astonishing to scientists. And that's what kind of the biggest problem is, is that the cancer cells mutate in a way that we can't predict. And so um, it's just, it's kind of maddening because a big part of the cancer world is just shrouded in mystery and and it doesn't make sense. So I think to try to contemplate it is 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 that like extra little thing because you kind of can't wrap your brain around it. You know, there's a lot of tragic things that happen to people. You could wrap your brain around it a little bit better. Um, so I think there's that added element. And when she when she died, to get to your question, um, uh, it was it was kind of shocking and um, obviously a little lonely. Um, uh, you know, especially as she got uh, closer to death, we had talked quite a bit more. So then all of a sudden there's no talking and there's no sibling in my life. And, you know, um, there's nobody that knows who I was as a kid. And all of a sudden I, you go, shit, man, I'm out here alone. And, um, and so I, I think, um, part of me wanted to um, press on and remember her and do things to kind of keep her memory alive or do things in her in her name and in her honor and part of me was probably on a multi multi-year grieving cycle which even you know I think it was about five years six seven seven years after she died that I even started this project in like 10 years after she died before I even really started to think hard about it, Mm. you know? Yeah. I think, um, that's something that surprised me about grief. Um, I don't know if you got this after your sister passed away. I heard this a lot after my mom died. Uh, everyone said the first year is the hardest Mm. and which in some ways is true. But I sort of heard that in a way of like, okay, so the first year is really hard and then you figure it out and then you move on with your life. And now four years later, it's like there's no bigger lie Mm -hmm. than, you know, figure it out and move on with your life. So I'm finding that the way I grieve her is evolving, but I am still grieving her. And I think, you know, I'll never have a mom again. So for the rest of my life, I will be grieving her in mm-hmm. some way or another. And I think that's something that I, I think about a lot as, um, you know, what, what does this, what will this look like 10 mm-hmm. years from now, you know, in 10 years from now, will I have an aha moment like you did and start something? I don't know. So it's, um, it's really interesting to, to think about. Right. Well, I, I, you know, I, I do think that there's p- part of it is the kind of the more you give it attention and the more light you shine on it, the more it continues to grow and stay alive, right? So I kind of applaud you for kind of leaning in and dealing with the grief and letting it still be a part of your life because it will grow and it will 
it, it will remain very close to you. You could alternately shut your brain and your heart and your and your soul down to contemplate that and figure out a way to box it up and hide it up. Then it wouldn't wouldn't feel so bad. It might not feel so present in your in your day to day. But I don't know that that's the healthiest way to deal with grief. Um, it might be for some people. It might be the right way to deal with it for some people. But um, I don't think we can ever make sense of these things, especially, you know, especially if if it touches you. It doesn't even mean like, wow, it has to be. Oh, it's such a it's a parent that I love. That makes it worse than it was a parent that I didn't love. I. I Honestly, I don't know that grief is, is, is measurable that way. The, the mm-hmm. grief is is your sense of loss. And, you know, when somebody um, loses a finger, they grieve that finger. They lost something that was a part of them. You know, mm-hmm. it's just it's it's you know, you lose you lose a, a, a pet, a friend, a, you know, even a coworker that you don't like. And you're just like a year later, you're sitting there going, Oh my God, that's such a terrible thing that happened. Right. I, yeah. I just, I just think that, um, that, that we're, we're not wired. I don't think we're wired to turn it off. I don't think we're wired to have any aha moment. Uh, now I'm going to be okay with it. I, I think what we have to do and what I've learned from, um, you know, the book participants is, you just learn to put it into perspective and maybe when you can think about the positives more than the negatives. And, um, that's, I, I think that's the only thing that you could ask of yourself, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about your book. So after your sister passed away, you kind of went down this you went the creative route with your yep. grief and you wrote a book called cycle of life. Let me tell you the book super quick. And then I'll, and then I'll go back to what, what the Genesis, the, the book is cycle of lives. It's 15 different people, but it's, um, it's, it's, uh, uh, patients, survivors, loved ones, caregivers, doctors, um, nurses, just all different types of people mm-hmm. that are, um, have been affected by cancer different ages, uh, different types of cancer. Maybe they lost somebody. Maybe they didn't. Maybe it was one and done. Maybe they've lived their whole life having cancer five different times over a 35-year period. Maybe they in cancer counter when they were a kid going to a middle school hospital tour and they said, oh my God, I've got to become a doctor. Or maybe they uh, got cancer or uh, cancer came into their life when a spouse of 25 years was diagnosed with cancer. So I wanted all these different ranges and um, what I wanted to do was to say, Shohana, point A was when they encountered cancer, whenever that was. Mm-hmm. Point B is today. So what's the emotional journey from point A to point B, but in relation to all the crap that happened before point A? Hmm. So in other words, we all have dealt with things. You dealt with a life, and whoever knew your mom dealt with a life that they had that was traumatic or impactful in certain ways before the um, you add that facet of somebody that we know and love was was taken by this terrible disease. Well, how how you lived your life before would have some type of an impact on whether or not you were or were not able to openly deal with the emotional side of it. And 
you know, for example, you've, you've decided to talk about grief and to interview people about grief and learn how do you contemplate, how do you get over, how do you put it all into perspective? You've decided to do that. Now, if earlier in your life, everybody that you met or the three or four most impactful people in your, that in your life that you met said, your words don't matter you know, you, you shouldn't have a voice because you have nothing to say mm-hmm. that that might've impacted whether or not you're going down the same road that you're going down. Mm-hmm. So what I wanted to do with the book was to take those previous traumas. How did that affect their ability or their inability to deal with the emotion of cancer? So I'll tell you, can I tell you a, a quick story about how the book started? Yes, please. Okay. So um, I had just started getting healthy. I was uh, overweight. I was a smoker. I was um, very living a very stressful life. I had a bad personal situation I was dealing with. I got my kids and me out of that bad situation. Uh, they were four years old at the time. And I just looked in the mirror and said, dude, who do you want to be? Um, and, and the answer was, I want to be somebody that's healthy and optimistic and live in life and, and stop all this nonsense. So I totally transformed my life into somebody who likes to do endurance athletics and become healthy and all of this kind of stuff. So I was going through those changes almost the exact same time that my sister um, was diagnosed with brain cancer. And so mm-hmm. m- uh, my evolution to be an athlete kind of came along parallel time frame to her evolution of dealing with cancer. Near the end of her life, she said to me, hey, there's a American Cancer Society 24-hour relay for life. I don't know if I'm going to make it, but I want to I want to lay on a cot and a tent and cheer on the people that are there to support me. And I was really impressed by that um, desire. So I said, okay, I'll run the whole 24 hours of the relay for life. So I'll be on the track the whole 24 hours, if you will. She said, yeah, let's let's do it. So unfortunately, she died a couple of days before the event. So she didn't get to be there. But I'd said, well, what the heck? I made a promise. Let's just do it. So I did the whole 24 hours. Um, And what I noticed was that people were really good about talking about the tasks around their cancer. Um, How do I navigate the healthcare system? How do I eat better? Um, What what doctor should I see? Um, Who's going to take care of my kids while I'm getting chemo? These kind of things they could deal with. But when it came to the emotional side, that's it. Nobody talked. Nobody talked. Even people that were like super close, they just, they don't know what to say, right? That's how they deal with cancer more than any other disease that I found is that sense of isolation or abandonment because people just don't know what to say. And so you lose your friends and family or whatever, or, uh, you know, regular contact with them because people are just, they don't know what to say. And every year, her name was June again. Um, every year I did a four June in June event. There was some kind of endurance athletic event that raised money for the cancer center that took care of her. And, um, and I would do this crazy, stupid endurance event. And, um, and that was kind of my, my thing. And every year I noticed the same thing. Like people loved like, Oh, I'll help you raise money or, but then when it came to like the heavy emotional shit, they weren't, excuse me, the stuff my mouth sometimes um they weren't able to 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 deal with it and i thought to myself wait a second 
if everybody I run into has that same issue, why don't I try to shed light on what people have gone through or what people are going through so that we can be less afraid to ask questions and to start the hard conversations? Do you know, I'm sure when you were going through it, and I hate to be presumptive, but I'm sure when you were going through it and people would find out what was going on with you and your mom, I'm sure that some people said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry to hear that, and then disappeared. Because they just didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to do, right? And you're just like, oh my God, I need you the most, and now you're gone. But then maybe you didn't tell some people because you didn't want to burden them. You didn't want to make it about you because it was about your mom. I mean, there could be a million things that are going on that just, it's just not natural to, to talk about it. And you maybe, maybe were going through some emotional ups and downs, but just not able to talk to anybody about it, either at your own doing, their doing, or a combination of the both. So I said, if I could get a bunch of people that would be really interesting impactful, inspiring, hopeful, insightful stories, talk to them, get them to talk to me. I talked to them literally for a couple of years. Um, If I could get that to happen, then maybe people could read the book. And when they hear about something that somebody's going through, then they could better deal with it. They could lean in and start having those hard conversations because that's what we all want, I think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think so much of what you're saying is really resonating mm-hmm. um, with my experience. I was curious. So you in, you spoke to 15 different people, and mm-hmm. obviously all of the stories are unique. But yeah. did you find that there were any themes that were consistent mm-hmm. among the different stories or the different participants? For sure. That's a great question, for sure. Um, there were kind of two things that were really similar. Um, and I kind of like one I expected and that was, uh, every single person, either they hadn't processed or they had not openly discussed the processing of the emotional side of it with people that they know. That was just something that was tucked away. It was just, I'll deal with it on my own. And usually it was because they didn't want to burden people. They didn't want other people to feel guilty. They didn't want to make it about them. They didn't want to make their grief bigger than the thought of losing the person that, you know, the other person lost their life. I just lost somebody, you know, like there's just so many reasons why people just didn't deal with it. So that, that was a very common theme and it still to this day is an unbelievably common theme. So everybody had that part of it. The other thing that I kind of found fascinating was that everybody I talked to, and I talked to way more than 15 people. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just that 15 people kind of let me go where we needed to go to bring really important stories. And we had to get pretty deep. Um, Is that everybody at some point went early on went, "Ah, you know, my story's not that interesting. You know, right? You might be thinking, that, oh, well, whatever, you know, everybody goes through something. It's not that, that but, but to me, it's interesting, right? To me, it's not, but, right? Everybody kind of discounts their life because we're all just living our life, right? Nobody thinks like, ooh, I'm something special. But it's kind of cool because when you really hear what people go through, even if it's just like whatever to them, you're sitting back and going, whoa, you did what? There's no way I could have handled that. 
you know, there's no possible way I could have known how to deal with that. And their answer was like, yeah, it's no big deal. You could do it. If you were forced to deal with X, you could deal with it. I'd be like, hell no, I couldn't. And then, you know, so I would thought it was fascinating that everybody told me their, you know, their life's not that interesting. And, um, you know, here's what I did. So I, 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 I feel like we're connected by emotions and by stories. And these are stories about emotions. Well, what better way to connect people than to jump on my bike and bike 5,000 miles up and down the country to go visit all these people I had talked to on the phone. And I would write this little narrative about dealing with my sister and losing her, the bike ride, you know, what was going on through my head as I'm biking from place to place and thinking about the book participants and the people that I met, whatever. And um, my, uh, my wife says to me, she goes, you know – you ought to make this story like about 16 people, not 15, because I think your story is pretty interesting. And I'm like, nah, nobody cares about my story. It's not that interesting. <laughs> and she's like, what are you talking about? That's exactly what you say they say. And I go, yeah, but they're really interesting. My story's not that interesting. She goes, shut up. Just write about it. So um, so that's kind of like the narrative that, that um, binds those 15 different stories together is the narrative of the bike ride around the country, um, the people that I met, and dealing with the – with the same issues that those 15 people were dealing with, you know, but my so sister. you biked 5,000 miles from yep. California to Florida and then, and up then to New York. To New York. Yeah. yeah. How long did that take in total? Oh my gosh. Well, it, I, I did it in only 45 days. <gasps> oh so do the wow. math for anybody out there. That's math whiz. I, I biked 41 out of the 45 days. I went about 4,700 miles. So that's almost 120 miles a day, which is a lot. It's a, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, and I was on a kind of a heavy bike. It was a solo ride. So I'm by myself. I did have support along the way. My wife supported me. I had some friends that came and supported me. I was only alone maybe about 10, 12 days um, where I didn't have support, but I was biking by myself. Um, and I think I had one day that was short, that was like seven or eight hours, but most days I was biking 12 to 14, even up to 16, 17 hours in a day just to get from point A to point B. And it was freaking brutal. It was really, really hard. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Yeah. Um, that is mind boggling. So during that trip, um, what are some things that you learned during just just that ride? Because I can't imagine. I mean, it, yeah, I, I'm, I'm speechless. <laughs> well, I learned a lot of things, a lot, right? One is um, um, biking on the busy highway with, you know, 50,000 pound big rigs whizzing by you and geez, flat tires from all the busted up steel belted radios and people driving all over it's it's freaking nerve-wracking man it's so nerve-wracking so it's a little bit dangerous i learned that um i learned that um that uh everybody has a story literally people would go oh what are you doing you know because i would kind of like stick out like a sore thumb and they would go, oh, what are you doing, blah, blah, And I told them, and they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, somebody at work just got diagnosed with cancer. I don't know what to say to them. Oh, um, you know, my my best friend's son just, just found out some really bad news. Which I don't know what to say. So it was, it was ridiculous, the amount of people that 
um, had the same kind of theme. So that was something I learned. Um, I learned that, um, that when I needed to rely on myself because nobody was there, I kind of found a way to rely on myself. And it also seemed that when I had somebody there, things happened where I couldn't have made it without them. So I kind of learned this like little balance of learning that it's okay to rely on people, even if sometimes you never can rely on people and vice versa. So that gave me a little perspective. I could go on and on and on. I also learned that that people are are not everybody, but people are freaking generous and they're thoughtful and they're kind if you give them the chance. And um, there's this. Let me tell you this one story. It's it's, it's kind of cool. So, um, it was at the tail end of a really busy day, and a friend of mine had flown in to come support me for a couple of days because my wife had to go back to California to uh, to take care of some things. And I'm I'm at the end of a terribly long day. I'm like two thirds of the way in. I'm like in New Orleans or something, or outside of out somewhere in in in. in in Louisiana or something. And I had biked like 14 hours and like the last two hours was in the rain. And if I would have gone, um, like the cars were really close to the edge of the shoulder and they were pushing me to go to the right, but it was like a freaking swamp. I was in Louisiana to the right. So I'm, I'm dealing with the stress of rain, being tired. I'm afraid that cars are going to drive me into the swamp. I'm afraid that an alligator is going to jump out and 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 scare me into the traffic. I'm going to get run over. It was super super stressful. So I'm all like I'm, I'm all like wit's end. We got like three places to eat. There's a Italian restaurant and like a Burger King and a IHOP or something at like nine o'clock at night. So we go. We got to get to the Italian restaurant. I'm not eating fast food after this day. So we go into this Italian restaurant. And we have this ridiculously good meal. And the waitress overhears um, us talking. And she goes, oh, you, you, you're you, doing this thing? And I go, yeah. She goes, you're biking across the country. I go, yeah. She goes, that's really amazing. So then she brought over the other two waitresses. And we told some stories. And we talked for a little while. And I thought that was really cool. Uh, it was the end of the night. So they had the time to do that. And then the owner came over and told me like three of her close family members had had dealt with or died from cancer and then as we're getting ready to leave she comes over and it's a tiny little family restaurant right they're not making much money and the owner's like hey i want to buy you guys dinner you know i appreciate what you're doing i thought that was super sweet and then the three waitresses they say hey can we take your picture you know that was really cool i did what i did i'm like yeah sure so i took the picture with the three of them and they handed me an envelope and it had like 50 something dollars in it and I go, oh, my God, you guys, you can't do that. And they go, no, that's our tips from tonight. We figure we can give you our tips from one night to help you with your raising money for this thing. And I went, you know, these women, they never seen me. They could be single moms. They could be working two jobs. I mean, forget about what dollar amount, but whatever it was, it was 100% of what they had made that night that they gave to a total stranger just because they were moved to do it. And I thought – man, people can be sweet, right? How, I mean, how thoughtful and caring is that? So I learned that if you give people a chance, um, they're really good. There's some really good people out there. That is so heartwarming. I know, right? It's a really sweet, it was a really sweet story. Yeah. One thing I'm curious about is because not just the 15 
different participants, but yeah. even not just the 15 different stories, but all of these stories from around the United States, these are really personal and deep stories a lot of the time. So how did you get people to open up to you on, on such a difficult topic? It was really hard. Um, I think that there was a combination and I really haven't been asked that question in such a way that I'm going to give you the answer I, I'm going to give because I haven't given this answer. Well, I think that for some people, um, I kind of trapped them, right? So once they got into it, they were felt kind of trapped. So they're like, okay, I'm part of this thing. I might as well talk to you. Other people um, hadn't ever talked to anybody and they were interested to talk to me. Mm-hmm. Some people, it was a very, very difficult, right? And so a lot of people couldn't go there. Um, but how I got them to answer questions was when I explained to them what I was doing. And when I asked them a question that or you're going down a path that what my editor would say is, is you, you gave me the answer. You didn't let me figure it out. I don't believe it. Right. Mm -hmm. I need to, I need to believe the answer that I come up with. And so you can't tell a story and tell somebody how to think about that story. You got, you got to tell a story that allows it like this, you know, like you hear this, this famous way of, of, of ending a book is, you know, is it, is it, is it the person had no idea it was going to end that way, but they're like, of course it ends that way, mm-hmm. but they had no idea, right? You can't do that by telling people what to think. You can't do that by faking it. You can't do that by taking the easy route to tell the story and so anytime that it got to where we, you know, we weren't, it just wasn't deep. It wasn't real. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, peeled back enough. I just kept pressing and pressing and pressing. And um, fortunately, pe- people, people let me go there. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, so the Patricia, okay. Patricia had five different cancers, 35 years worth of cancer diagnoses, some of them very serious, very serious. Basically, she lived with cancer her whole life, every kind of imaginable short-term, medium-term, long-term side effect. She has been through the ringer, like unbelievable whatever. And But she took charge of her own care. And her story is partly about empowering your journey with your health and with yourself by taking charge and getting information and pushing your doctors and caregivers to give you the right care and that type of stuff. But I couldn't understand how she got the strength, right? I couldn't, I couldn't understand how she got the strength to do that, but her story wasn't really about the cancer. Her story was about the fact that the first cancer came about a year after she escaped a absolutely horrifying, brutal four-year abusive relationship where, I mean, so bad that, you know, couldn't have a friend, couldn't go out, couldn't talk, would get beat up just because he thought she was thinking something bad. I mean, mm-hmm. just horrible. Put her in the hospital, you know, uh, 
shut her off from her life. It was just absolutely the most harrowing experience ever. So she had to escape, which took her a long time to plan how to escape without him coming after her and killing her because she had to do it in a way that would involve nobody that was in her life because he would track them down in a way that she could change her identity. Otherwise he would find her. It was crazy. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you think about what kind of guts and what kind of strength and what kind of uh, fortitude and self-belief it takes to get out of a situation like that. Then I can start to contemplate how she could go on and on and on with this whole strength thing of dealing with cancer. I couldn't do it. I go, there's no freaking way. Are you freaking kidding me? Five times? I'd give up after the second time. Like, like I just know, right? But then it, then I just kept asking, how, like, how did you do it? How did you do it? How did you do it? And then she said one thing that made like such perfect sense to me. And she said, look, David, I didn't always get up out of bed and go about a full day. She said, but the way that I got through every day of that 35 years was I got up every day. Now, up sometimes meant I only had the strength to make my bed and then lay back down in it again. Sometimes the strength was to get up and get to the bathroom. Sometimes the strength was to go downstairs. Sometimes it was to go to the store or to sit in front of a TV and spend time with my husband or whatever, right? But she said, I just had to find something that I could every day look at as giving me strength because her, what, get her, what got her through everything in her life was her strength. And I think if she gave into the fact that she doesn't have strength and which for her was just somehow, some way I'm putting my feet on the floor every day and the worst I'm going to do is stand up and make my bed. I'm kind of like, wow, now I get it. Now I get what strength could mean to somebody, the strength to deal with those kind of things. So it, it took a while to kind of get those gems. And for her, for, for her, what she said to herself, uh, she, she told me a great story about um, uh, being with friends and she, she was going through chemo and she was bald and she was wearing scarves. She didn't want to wear scarves. So she just went back to the hotel room, took her hat off, took her scarf off and said, I'm going to be bald. Who, who cares? And she looked in the mirror and she went, man, dude, you have been through the ringer, but we all have our time, don't we? We all have our time. And I thought to myself, boy, that's just something. I mean, just it just kind of floods me with gratitude and understanding so that when I feel that somebody is going through something that I just can't even imagine, I'm much more comfortable going up to them going, dude, you must be, you you must feel like you're going through the ringer. Like you, like how in the world can you handle that? Oh my God. Like, like, like what, like, do you ever like do more than get up out of bed or, you know, I can, now I can go, Oh, I can have a conversation with them where I don't feel like an idiot going, uh, there's no way I could do that. Uh, I don't, uh, I don't know what to say. Uh, okay, I'm going to leave them alone because I got nothing in common with them. Meanwhile, all they're hoping and maybe is that I'll talk to them or that they have a safe place to talk to me. So I'm sorry for giving you super crazy long story <laughs> and answer, but um, I, um, why I needed to go that deep was to pick those gems. 
because mm-hmm. for me, they'll stick with me forever. I think when people read the book and everybody that's read the book has told me or that I've interacted with it, that's read the book has told me, oh my God, this one story or this one facet of this one story, you know, was so important, stuck with me or whatever. I go, ah, that's, that's, that's what I want. That's, you know, cause that, they're going to carry that through life. And when they hear what you're going through, when they hear what other people are going through, they might be able to relate to you just a little bit better. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, are you still in contact with any of the participants from the book? I am. Not with all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of them passed away. So um, uh, the other ones are, are all alive. And I'd say that two or three, uh, maybe one or two I knew ahead of time, and they're, they're still friends. Um two or three became very good friends through the process and the balance of them. If I needed to, I could call them up and say, Hey, how's it going or whatever. But you know, we all live our lives and everybody's busy and they all got everything going on. So it's not a little kumbaya circle where we all sit around and hold hands about the whole thing all, you know, our whole lives. But um, certainly I am in touch with um, several people that were part of the project um, and, and that I had spent a lot of time with, and I am definitely better for it. Yeah. So I think when we think cancer, we often think really heavy, you know, difficult stories. Um, are all of the stories in the book kind of, you know, that heavy or are there uplifting tones or moments in them? It sounds like from Patricia's story, like maybe, you know, all of the stories are multifaceted, but I'd love to they hear. Are. Yeah, they are. And that's kind of the, the, the shocking part along the way. And I probably should have, should have shouted a little bit louder about the fact that the stories are hopeful and inspiring and, and put a smile on people's faces. And, you know, they're, they, they, they are really uplifting. I mean, some of them are pretty tragic, but even the tragic ones have, have some hope and have some redemption and have some, 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 some really positive things to it. So I probably could have shouted that a little bit louder, but I also thought that I was going to be dealing with the heavier aspect of it. And even, um, even the heaviest of the heaviest of the heaviest, most traumatic, tragic story in there has some parts in it that are just so inspiring and so hopeful and so positive. Mm. If I could tell you one more quick story. (laughs) So there's a story and I like to say to people, uh, the the other thing I wanted to do with the book was like, not just the, I told you about the types of cancer and the ages and the perspective or whatever, but also a range of emotions Mm. because we all have a different emotional responses to the things that we go through. So sometimes I like to trick people into having a deeper conversation by saying, can you imagine being told that you have no idea what's going on? You had no idea what was going on. All of a sudden you just go from your reality to one day you wake up and your spouse of 25 years looks you in the eye and says, I need to tell you that they're wheeling you in for surgery. You're going to have... Uh, 12 to 14 hours of surgery on your brain to remove a grapefruit sized tumor and you might not survive. 
And could you imagine smiling about it and saying, thank God. And you go, no way. I mean, that's completely stupid. Who would ever think that? But you know what? And if I told you the whole story and I'll tell it to you briefly, you understand how tragic of a story is this. So the husband and wife, they're married forever. They have six kids. Uh, one of them passes away at 18 months, very tragically. They go on to have a couple of more kids. So um, it didn't pull them apart, but it certainly strained their marriage. And they had ups and downs and they had to see counselors and they had to do this and they had to do that. Um, um, and like any big family, they've had tragedy and they had a lot of good stuff too, but just, they're just living their lives doing whatever. Well, after being married 25 years and dealing with all the ups and downs, things started to get rocky between them. And so rocky that the therapy that had helped them over the years wasn't helping anymore. And they were fighting more and more and the husband was becoming detached and the wife was becoming angrier and angrier and was starting to affect the family and it was starting to really sink in that they weren't going to be able to stay together. And she kept getting angrier and he kept getting more distant and she became unrationally angry and unreasonably angry and they would fight about nothing and they would fight hard and it was all they could do to keep it together. And finally one day in a fit of, um, of, of rage, they had a knockdown, drag out scream fest all night long. And at the end of it, she was completely wiped out. And she said, it's me. She goes, I'm going crazy. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. I'm going crazy. The only solution is you have to put me in a mental institution. You have, you have to commit me. You have to have somebody do whatever they need to do to me to make me better because it's me. It's not you. And how freaking tragic is that? So they put her in a mental institution. They put her through a battery of tests in the first couple of hours. And they get the results back. She's got a grapefruit-sized tumor in her brain. They call the husband. They tell him what's going on. Get down here right away. He drives down to the hospital, the, the mental hospital, and wakes her up and says, this is what's happening. We've put together, they're very well off um, financially. We've put together a, an amazing team. Um, you might not live, but we're going to have to, we're going to have to hope that you do. They want to remove this grapefruit-sized tumor from your brain. And she started crying saying, thank God. Right? Mm -hmm. So if I told you the story of, could you imagine being told you, you got this grapefruit-sized tumor and you, you're going to have to get it taken away and you might die and you're going to leave your husband and kids behind and you're happy about it or you're grateful for it, you would be like, oh, bullshit. But when you hear that story and you go, oh my God, imagine that she, even if she didn't survive the surgery, which she did, she at least would have died knowing that it wasn't her. It wasn't going crazy, that her life mattered, that her and her husband's love was real, that her, that the ups and downs that they experienced through life and made it through were, were real. Those things were, those things were, were things that she could, that they, she could own those at a, at a deeper level, knowing that it wasn't her that was causing all that to unravel. So that to me is a hopeful, inspiring, wonderful story. Now she ended up dying about a year later, very tragic for her and her, and her kids. Even one of her kids was very young. Um, and her husband and their family, very, very tragic. 
Um, and, but at least there's that hopeful side of it, you know, that like, if she could, if, if anybody reads that story and, and can relate to that situation, what a gift, right? What a gift. So anyway, there's, there's a, there's another crazy story for you. Um, so last question, just as we're coming up to time, um, what do you hope the reader takes away from, from reading your book? Um, kind of what I did, what most people have told me, um, just the other day I had a, um, a guy tell me he was an oncologist and, um, gave up his practice and became, he's doing podcasts and he runs a, a nonprofit in the cancer space. And he said, I read your book twice, cover to cover. Mm-hmm. First time I read it, I was horrified because I thought I was a horrible doctor. What the hell? I had no idea what my patients were going through. I was so worried about caring for them. I didn't know what the hell they were going through. So maybe I was a crappy doctor. God, I hope not. He goes, and then the second time I read it, I was really like taken aback by the stories. And I was really moved by these, you know, these people. And I, and I thought to myself, I'm sure he was a great doctor. Otherwise he wouldn't have asked himself those questions. But what I'm hoping that people get out of it and what they've told me that they will is that it's giving them information on how to better relate to people. Like I might not ever be able to understand what you're going through, having lost your mother and the way that you're grieving. Maybe I'll never understand it. And maybe it's, that's normal that I'll never understand it. But what maybe might happen if people read the book and they can understand how to talk to you better is that maybe you could feel safe to open up to one more person because of it or they, them to you, you know, because of the book. So that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. And that's, that's the ultimate goal is to, as you said in the beginning of this conversation, to shed light on, on grief because it's universal and we got to deal with it at one point or another. So why not talk about it? Or not deal with it and not dealing or with not it. Or not deal with it. I don't that's think it's the way to go, right? Yeah. It's not yeah. a help. It's some people need to mm-hmm. need For to sure. not talk about it, but I, I can't believe that's a better way to live. Yeah. What can we say? Um, well, David, thank you so much. This was such a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Um, it has really been just eye opening and, um, I can't wait to read the book. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. I, um, apologize to your listeners for my rambling stories. (laughs) No rambling. Great stories. But, um, yeah, thank you. I mean, it's really great what you're doing. Keep doing it because, um, you know, uh, grief and loss and coming to terms with it and finding a safe space to be heart centered and talk about it and give people a chance to care about you or teach them how to care about others is such a noble thing to do. So I'm very proud of you. I'm very impressed by what you're doing and I'm going to urge you to continue to do it. Thank you so much. Yes. How nice was that? That was nice. That was really nice. You can learn more about David and his work at david-richmond.com. That's all this week. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts to listen, and please rate and leave us a review. It really helps. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at FindersGrievers, and write to us at FindersGrievers at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. 
I'll see you in two weeks. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. 